Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Good morning. This is Beth, and I'll be reading you today's edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, February 12th. We start with the weather and the lottery. Today, another nice day in this string of nice days we had, a high of uh, 44 and partly sunny. Tonight, though, it becomes overcast and that mix of snow and rain starts late. And tomorrow, pretty much all day, it's going to be a messy day. Rain and snow. Now, this forecast says becoming all rain. Uh, local TV forecasts are saying that we should get between one and three inches of snow here on the Cape with mostly snow later in the day. Wednesday, plenty of sunshine, but we start kind of a cool streak where it's clear but cool. Taking a look at some lottery numbers from yesterday, Sunday, February 11th, the midday drawing numbers game, 3425. And last night's numbers game drawing was 1032. Sunday's mass cash, 1, 11, 29, 30, and 35. And Saturday's Powerball, 27, 28, 34, 37, 44, Powerball 8. First front page headline, Barnstable to seek new police chief. For the second time in less than a decade, Barnstable is in the market for a new police chief. Town manager Mark Ells recently announced the town will soon begin its search for a chief to lead the Barnstable Police Department after former Chief Matthew Sonnebend retired without fanfare on January 29th. In the meantime, Ells has appointed Deputy Chief Jean Chalice, who's marking 22 years with the department this year, as the Provisional Chief. Until the position is filled permanently, Provisional Chief Chalice has the full authority to act as Barnstable Chief of Police, wrote Lynn Poyant, the town's Director of Communications, in a Thursday email responding to an inquiry about Sonnebend's retirement and the impending chief search. The former chief's retirement came as the culmination of an extended medical leave that began sometime last year. News of his leave was reported last September, but town administration declined to indicate when the leave started. No further t- details have been released at this time. Sonnebend, who tallied 26 years on the Barnstable Police Force, was promoted to chief in spring of 2018. He succeeded former Chief Paul McDonald after he retired in April 2018 at the end of a 12-year tenure as chief and almost four decades with the department. Sonnebend was one of three finalists for the top police job after a search that considered only internal candidates. Challies was also a finalist and in 2020 was the first woman in the Barcelona Police Department to reach the rank of deputy chief. As of press time, she had not yet responded to an inquiry from the Times about whether she will seek the chief's position permanently. The timeline for naming a new chief is not yet known. Presently, the hiring process in the department is governed by provisions of the Mass Civil Service Program and can be lengthy. But that could change for the next police chief search as the town is looking at opting out of the program. At its February 15th meeting, the town council will consider an agenda item under new business introducing a $35,000 supplemental appropriation order to fund consulting services and overtime costs 
for the purpose of exploring the removal of the Barstable Police Department from civil service. A public hearing on the matter is scheduled for March 7th. According to a memo drafted by Ells and included in the February 15th agenda packet, this proposal to exit civil service follows lengthy discussions with the police department and two police unions. The funding, according to Ells, will cover the costs associated with the internal police department working groups that will be formed to work with their union reps and the outside consulting legal services that will be needed to assist with the process. The funding is a one-time request and would come from the town's general fund reserves, which presently have a balance of $29,148,000. It is anticipated that upon completion of this process, an item will be brought before the town council to request removal of the sworn members of the Barnstable Police Department from the Civil Service, Ells wrote. Among other functions, civil service provides hiring and promotional exams, both for internal and external searches, and ranks candidates for consideration. Town hiring officers or panels must follow certain protocols throughout. According to the Mass Municipal Association, critics of the system find it too cumbersome and restrictive, making it difficult to attract candidates. The Mass Legislature enacted the civil service system in 1884, as a means of combating corruption, cronyism, and political interference in hiring and discipline within certain services, such as police and fire, all issues that are now avoided through collective bargaining. Barnstable adopted the provisions of civil service in 1937. The Mass Municipal Association last month reported that a special legislative commission is studying the civil service law and considering proposals to modernize the system. Second front page headline, that was easy. Beachgoer photos at Sandwich Beach add to Coastline Protection pro pro Program. As teal green waves clambered ashore Wednesday morning at Town Neck Beach in Sandwich, clawing at what little beach there was just past the day's highest tide, graduate student Riley Thomas went to work. Thomas, in a combined program of the Mass Institute of Technology and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, placed her cell phone in a metal support affixed to the railing at the end of a boardwalk overlooking Cape Cod Bay. She snapped two photos of the coastline, first looking eastward, then westward, scanned a QR code printed on the support, and loaded her images to an online data bank that monitors change to the shore over time. That was easy, she said, when she finished, turning her phone to show the message confirming she successfully submitted the photos. Thomas was among the first to take advantage of a new integration of the Hui Sea Grant Coast Snap Station at Town Neck Beach and the My Coast Mass website. My Coast MA is a software portal used by the Massachusetts Coastal Zone Management Office to collect and share photos and observations of coastal flooding, storm impacts, and shoreline change. The photos and observations are intended to guide policy. With the help of the Sandwich Department of Natural Resources, the new CoastSnap slash MyCoast integration was formally launched on Wednesday, starting with trading the existing CoastSnap sign with a new one offering easy, direct access to the image collection site via the QR code. CoastSnap 
is a social media-based beach monitoring and outreach tool intended to engage the public in observing coastal change and allow them to participate in documenting it. The initiative was created by researchers at the University of New South Wales in Australia and can now be found in 22 countries around the world. Cape Cod Cooperative Extension and Hui Sea Grant Coastal Resilience Specialist Shelley McComb said until now the citizen science project had to rely on people taking photos and then taking the time to upload them and email it or post it on Facebook. Then the staff needed to track them manually. The new process allows that to happen right at the CoSnap station in less than a minute. McComb hopes that this will lead to more participation in the project, which he admitted has not been as robust as hoped at Town Neck. You don't even have to load an app and sign in, she said. It's super easy. After trying it out herself on Wednesday, Sarah Doss, an associate scientist in geology and geophysics at Woods Hole, agreed the process is simple and fast. The Woods Hole Sea Grant has been monitoring coastal change at Town Neck since 2020, using images uploaded by citizen scientists through the Coast Snap Station. That's according to Stephanie Murphy, who's Senior Communications Specialist for the program. The new integration will help Doss and Thomas with their work in evaluating coastal changes resulting from storms, shifting currents, and sea level rise. It's kind of a new era for us in terms of photos and access to databases, and that's where Sarah and Riley fit in in terms of doing the science, Murphy said. The scientists will work with the images to make quantitative measurements of shoreline changes to complement existing work the Town of Sandwich is doing toward coastal resilience at Town Neck. Now, my coast automatically tags geolocation for each photo, links to the NOAA tides and currents databases to show what the tides were doing at the time a photo was taken. It provides a snapshot of the weather at the time, and it displays that info on a map. It is Thomas's job to develop quantitative analysis based on the collective images and related data. We'll collect the photos off my coast and run them through some codes. We have stationary points in the pictures that have GPS tags. From there, we can get shoreline positions and see how the shoreline moves. You can make time lapses of the beach and can do things like monitor the dunes. Das noted that Thomas will look at the weather data and correlating it with observed beach conditions to help us understand what's happening. The goal is to put science behind that and help with the interpretation of the changes, ultimately to create more resilient coastlines. Over time, collected photos will capture beach conditions before and after storms and will be combined into time-lapse video where change can easily be observed. The videos will be posted to social media and the Woods Hole Sea Grant website. They'll also be shared with communities, coastal and town managers, and researchers. McComb said Town Neck is particularly important to monitor to gain insights into the effects of bigger, more frequent storms and sea level rise owing to climate change. Because this area gets eroded really fast, so it's really important to have this station here to monitor what's going on, she said. Town Neck Beach has been deprived of material from longshore sediment transport by nearby jetties for over 100 years. Now, this lack of sand input, combined with rising sea levels, has led to the relatively rapid erosion of this section of shoreline. As a result, 
Shoreline protection for homes needs constant vigilance, and without active nourishment, the barrier beach would not be able to sustain its current location. Doss said she and Thomas both liked the idea of involving citizens, like crowdsourcing, and helping them do their science and the town to develop resiliency plans. The power of scientists, town officials, and citizens working together, she said, could be enormous. The public can provide more eyes and more data to understand the problem, she said. When people are part of the scientific process, they feel more invested in problem-solving and developing more of a sense of urgency to prepare for the challenges of climate change rather than simply reacting to them. McComb said the effort earns the town additional credits towards the community rating system, a national FEMA program that offers a discount on premiums for residents who have flood insurance under the National Flood Insurance Program. Presently, Sandwich is ranked a Class 7 community under the system, granting residents in this program a 15% discount, according to FEMA. Now, Town Neck isn't the only location being watched. McComb said there is a Coast Snap station on Joseph Sylvia State Beach facing Nantucket Sound on the east side of Martha's Vineyard, where a new sign with the integrated program info will be posted. And in March, we're going to be putting one on Nantucket on Cisco Beach, she said. In this story from Wellfleet, Mother Nature threw some kinks into the rescue of a paraglider who crashed into the dunes at Whitecrest Beach on Thursday. Dispatchers received a call about a paraglider with a possible broken leg at 11.43 a.m., Deputy Fire Chief Joseph Capello said. Fire paramedics and department personnel worked with National Park Service rangers from the Cape Cod National Seashore to transport the man on an all-terrain vehicle. The patient had non-life-threatening injuries and was delivered to the hospital at 1.21 p.m. Mother Nature definitely was a problem, but our paramedics immediately got on scene and started rendering aid as soon as they got there and didn't stop until the person was delivered to Cape Cod Hospital, Capello said. With the footpath eroded from storms and a rising tide filling a little depression between Whitecrest and Newcomb Hollow beaches, Capello said the rescue was an extended one. Whitecrest Beach is an area popular with paragliders. The department has received other calls for similar incidents with paragliders. Unfortunately, there are times the wind changes direction and they find themselves in trouble, he said, and that's what happened. He crashed into the dune and injured himself. And here's another front-page story headline, A Shoulder to Laugh On, from Worcester. Breaking up is hard to do, as famously stated by singer Neil Sedaka, whether the relationship is new or decades old, ending is never easy. So what do you bring to a breakup? So-called breakup kits are the latest trend and topic of discussion on the Internet, from scented candles and coffee mugs to bath bombs. Livy, a local woman who declined to give her full name, brought a clown to her recent breakup. Knowing she was anxious at ending the two-year relationship, a friend had sent her an Instagram post advertising an emotional support clown as a joke. The whole relationship was just very stress stressful, she said. It was like a sign from the universe saying, why don't I go completely wacky and goofy with the breakup? While confetti and balloon animals may seem out of place in these emotional situations, for some people, that may be just what they need. 
as an emotional support clown worcester native caitlin papa accompanies clients when delivering or receiving tough news such as quitting a job being let go or breakups it definitely breaks the tension said papa it's crazy but it works unsurprisingly livy's former paramour was nonplussed i think the whole time he was in this weird reality loop of is this real is this happening said livy he was so caught off guard that everything that happened after the fact took him a little longer to catch up and i was able to say what i had to say though papa has been clowning for about two years now having attended the northeast clown institute in plymouth she only recently started this particular service after the new year papa was laid off from her day job in marketing i remember thinking wow i really wish there was something that made that experience a little lighter she recalled when doom-scrolling social media she saw a post about a man in australia who before a meeting about ending his employment was told he could bring someone for emotional support he chose to hire he chose to hire a clown initially papa thought it had to be a meme and couldn't be real i remember seeing that right after thought that would be incredible to have someone lighten the mood <clears throat> make it a little less heavy she said papa decided to add emotional support to her list of services among kids parties balloon shows and the occasional bachelor party i've always considered myself to be a very empathetic and comforting person so combining that with clowning is really cool she said in the month since she started papa has already done at least three emotional support jobs including the breakup she works with the client and plans out the situation beforehand according to what makes them the most comfortable we talk about it whether i deliver the news for them or not that kind of thing she said recently papa accompanied someone to announce they were leaving their job at a restaurant she knew it would be difficult for her boss and co-workers so she asked me to come and do it with her she said it went really well and became more of a celebration of her time there than quitting in an aggressive fashion another recent client was more similar to papa's own inciting incident cheering someone up after they'd been fired entertaining the woman and her friends with balloon animals even the breakup was not without a balloon animal as livy's ex walked away with a balloon lion which in itself was a joke i'm not sure if he saw it but the lion was symbolic said livy has a loud roar but one small pin and he pops she threw confetti in the air before he even said anything said livy we decided we wouldn't let him control the emotions of the situation i was choosing to be joyful in this transition and claim my time my space and energy as someone who already enjoyed jokes harmless pranks and april fool's day livy felt that her decision was tapping into who she wanted to be rather than what she had been during her relationship and reaffirming her old self absolutely money well spent she said papa is a clown so she's fun and she's sweet but she's also strong and confident so it was a relief to have that energy in my corner it was a scary stress stressful and sad situation but i was able to go into it <clears throat> and know that i'll be okay because i have the physical embodiment of joy with me for her part papa is also hoping to help deliver some positive news as well and said someone recently suggested she be present for a pregnancy announcement between being an emotional support clown and more traditional clowning gigs papa is planning to don the red nose as her full-time job for the time being now that i have more free time i'm definitely focusing on this as my main career she said 
It's going to be a fun road. And here is this week's photo column written by Cape Cod Times Chief Photographer Steve Heaslip with the headline, Listening with Your Eyes Helps Make Better Photos. Listen with your eyes. This expression is open for interpretation, but often refers to a mindful way to pay attention. It is also a good photo aid, better images from engaged listening. The All Cape and Islands Music Festival is a great place to practice. This event annually gathers the best high school musicians together, forming an orchestra, a band, a mixed chorus, and treble chorus. This year, over 250 students arrived at Barstable High School on February 1st for three days of rehearsals, followed by an afternoon concert. It's always hard to know where to start as the groups rehearse throughout the school's music rooms and two auditoriums. I arrived Saturday morning for the final practice before the afternoon performance. The directors had the students well rehearsed and were fine-tuning the nuances of their songs. This involved repetitive work, playing one section repeatedly, looking for just the right sound. Listening became more important than seeing at this point, watching and hearing. As a photographer, faces are a key component in most storytelling images. There's an old expression from the manual focus days. Get the eyes in focus and you are 90% there for a good photo. It's still true today, but the autofocus assist is always welcome. As the finer points of the musical scores were discussed in practice, I repositioned and took time to look from the back of the practice hall as the students refined some of the trickier sections. Watching all this musical mastery is fascinating. As a former high school band student, alto saxophone, the one thing I always dreaded was playing soft passages. There's nothing like playing your heart out on John Philip Sousa's The Stars and Stripes Forever March in a large band, everyone in sync, making beautiful music together. But when the music went soft and slow with only a couple of instruments playing, mistakes were easy to spot and there was nowhere to hide. The treble chorus worked through sections of Brahms' Daimir, singing the German words. I was afraid to trip the shutter, it was so still. The delicate song required a lot of attention to perform. Their voices didn't need to be loud to be strong, they just needed to be in unison. The world could use a lot of softer voices these days, coming together in harmony. Again, that was written by Cape Cod Times Chief Photographer Steve Heaslip. And this story from Washington, did special counsel Robert Herr cross the line when he attacked President Biden's mental acuity in a report that was supposed to be about the mishandling of classified documents? Former prosecutors, even some Republicans, say he did that and more. On Thursday, Biden himself angrily accused Herr of gratuitous slander in announcing that the president would not face criminal charges in part because he was an elderly man with a poor memory. A day later, prominent Democrats, including former Attorney General Eric Holder and Vice President Kamala Harris, both former prosecutors, rushed to Biden's defense. So did a host of other legal experts on social media and in interviews with USA Today. Some Republicans did, too, saying Herr went overboard with his description of Biden's performance during an interview with prosecutors. 
Her's 388-page report included shocking details describing how the 81-year-old president allegedly didn't remember when he was vice president or when his son Beau died of brain cancer. Biden angrily rebutted those accusations Thursday night. I think it's outrageous. Prosecutors are taught that the Department of Justice should speak through charges or it shouldn't speak at all, said Mark Lytle, a veteran Justice Department public corruption prosecutor who also served in the White House Counsel's Office in the Trump administration. I'm no fan of President Biden, but he's not charged with a crime, and now he's out there having to defend himself? And how can he defend himself when there's no jury or judge to decide whether those allegations are true, asked Lytle, who describes himself as a Republican. Her is acting like prosecutor, judge, and jury. And the other side of that coin is it gives Trump and other opponents of Biden all this ammo to argue against him. Like others, Lytle described Hur's report as a Jim Comey moment, a reference to then-FBI Director James Comey's decision to publicly announce the reopening of his investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server just 11 days before the 2016 presidential election, which she lost to Donald Trump. Comey also trashed Clinton in a lengthy news conference that July, saying he had evidence of potential violations of the law by Clinton because of her extremely careless handling of classified material, before adding that no reasonable prosecutor would bring an actual case against her. Comey's comments gave Trump ammo to use against Clinton and prompted a sharp rebuke by the Justice Department's Inspector General. Her who was a career Justice Department official and prosecutor before Trump appointed him U.S. Attorney for Maryland in 2018, has not publicly commented on his bombshell report or the backlash from some of his colleagues. Her was appointed special counsel in the Biden documents case by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Jonathan Turley, a nationally recognized conservative legal scholar and defense attorney, defended her, saying he needed to include such details in order to justify not charging Biden after such a high-profile probe. This was not a standard prosecutorial review, Turley told USA Today. The special counsel was expected to give a detailed report, and he based his legal conclusion in part on the fact that President Biden could not remember critical facts and that he would make a sympathetic, sympathetic defendant so he made it clear that that was a significant concern for the prosecutors. At first blush, I was surprised by these references and observations, Turley said, but in fairness to her, the thrust of the investigation was to determine President Biden's knowledge and actions over the course of 40 years. And so the president's memory was always going to be material to any conclusions that were reached in his investigation, and he had to explain why Biden didn't have answers to these questions. Jean Rossi, another longtime federal prosecutor and Justice Department official, said he understood why her needed to include some details of Biden's alleged failure to recall certain events or his state of mind at particular times because it went to the heart of whether the president knew he was in possession of classified material including when talking to a ghostwriter for a book he wrote after the Obama administration. But he crossed the line in the sense that he brought up details that probably had nothing to do 
with whether President Biden violated the law, Rossi said. Whether President Biden allegedly did not remember when his son passed away, which I find absolutely preposterous if that happened, has nothing to do with the allegations as to whether he willfully retained documents. Her strong language about the mental acuity and the age of President Biden causes me pause because that was, frankly, borderline reckless editorial writing, Rossi added. They could have done it in a more professional way, and I think that those passages are completely unnecessary. Alan Lickman, a presidential historian and professor at American University, said Hur's report was clearly an unnecessary personal attack on Biden. I have to say this report from the special counsel was a disgrace, Lickman said. If you're not charging someone, you don't attack them with your personal opinions, your views, or your innuendo. James Comey was roundly and rightly contemned for do condemned for doing this back in 2016, and now we've seen the exact same thing from Mr. Herr, and it is totally inappropriate, Lickman said. Eric Holder, a longtime career prosecutor and attorney general under President Barack Obama, was one of many lawyers who said Herr included far more detail about Biden's state of mind than was necessary. Special Counsel Herr's report on Biden classified documents issues contains way too many gratuitous remarks and is flatly inconsistent with long-standing DOJ traditions, Holder said. Had this report been subject to a normal DOJ review, these remarks would undoubtedly have been excised. So we've reached the halfway point of our broadcast, and at this time we read today's obituaries. Madeline Lynn Comerford, 79, of Cape Cod, passed away Wednesday, February 7th, after a short illness. She graduated from Cambridge Public Schools and attended Clark University. She was married to the late Thomas Comerford for 40 years. They lived together in Spencer before Lynn relocated to Cape Cod in 2015. Lynn worked at Riley Stoker in Worcester in the early 80s before she moved on to Clark University in Worcester, where she worked in the payroll department until her retirement in 2005. Lynn was very involved in student enrollment to ensure the process ran smoothly each year. Lynn was most passionate about her family. She would rather be with family than any place else on earth, and her children and grandchildren met the world to her. Lynn loved all animals and had many over the years. She was a devoted friend to many. Upon meeting her for the first time, you instantly became her best friend, as many have indicated. Lynn had such a kind, open way about her that made everyone she met feel loved. Lynn was a proud friend of Bill's for over 46 years. She sponsored many people throughout the years and made such a tremendous difference in their lives. Lynn is survived by four children, Carmen Malgary, Christina Beasley and fiancé Robert Connors, Lori Comerford, Thomas Comerford, and his wife, Sunnery. She's also survived by her brother, Norman Roberts, and his wife, Margaret, brother-in-law, Joseph Comerford, Ronald Comerford, and his wife, Catherine, sister-in-law, Catherine Scalise, and husband, Mario, and Louis Melgari. She's also survived by her first husband and friend, Carmen Melgari, and ten grandchildren. A mass in Lynn's honor will be held at St. Pius the Church, 5 Barbara Street in South Yarmouth, on Saturday, February 17th at 11 a.m. 
A burial will take place at Massachusetts National Cemetery in Buzzards Bay on Monday, February 19th at 9 a.m., and a private celebration of life will be held in the spring per Lynn's wishes date to be determined. Judith B. Freher of West Barnstable passed on February 7th at Cape Cod Hospital, surrounded by family. Judy is survived by her sister, Joyce Chasson of Mashby, a son, Christopher Freyer of Greenwich, New York, a daughter, Jennifer Gumbrecht of Putnam Valley, New York, who recently relocated to Cape Cod to be with Judy, and four grandchildren. Judy was an avid gardener, quilter, and reader, loved the beach, and to travel. A celebration of life will be held in the spring. And Arthur A. Otterino passed away peacefully February 4th while on vacation in Georgia, just days shy of his 78th birthday. Art was born in Worcester and grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, where he graduated from Montclair High School. He went on to earn a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Virginia, followed by a master's degree in industrial administration from Union College. Art had a successful career starting as a managerial trainee at GE and moving on to vice president positions at Smith & Wesson, Murray Incorporated, Theracense, and finally Abbott Diabetes Care. After retiring, Art embraced the beaches and life in East Ham, becoming heavily involved in the community. He was an active member of the Orleans Yacht Club, served as a volunteer at the National Seashore, he was a board member at the Nauset Light Preservation Society and was a treasurer of the East Ham Historical Society. In East Ham, he served on the planning board for seven years, the finance committee for five years, and the strategic planning committee as chairman. Elected to the East Ham Select Board in 2020, he was serving as the chairman at the time of his death. Art will be sorely missed by his family and all who knew him. He was a loving and deeply caring husband, father, grandfather, brother, and uncle. He will be remembered for his love of his Italian heritage, his sense of humor, and his genuine warmth and kindness. He is survived by his wife, Georgia Autorino, his daughters, Molly Autorino Crossick and her husband, Stephen, Amelia Autorino and her partner, John Simmons, and J. Jamie Autorino Pacetti and her husband, David. Grandchildren, Jaden Jacqueline, Lucas, and Nicholas Crossick, brother Robert Otterino and his wife Patsy, and many niece, nephews, and cousins. The family will hold a private burial, followed by a celebration of life at the Orleans Yacht Club at a date to be determined. Back to the news, and the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration has opened an investigation into two companies after a wall collapsed at a Falmouth construction site on February 2nd, seriously injuring two workers who were flown by helicopter to the hospital. OSHA spokesperson Ted Fitzgerald said in an email Friday, inspections of Evolution Pro Builder Incorporated and general contractor the Milton Company are ongoing and will determine the employer's compliance with health and safety standards. OSHA will gather whatever information is necessary to make a determination, Fitzgerald said. If the inspections identify violations, OSHA could issue citations and propose penalties for the employers involved. The incident occurred at 2.30 p.m. at 513 Brick Kiln Road on February 2nd. 
At first, one worker was reported injured, and then a second worker was reported injured. The two men were removed from under the fallen wall by fellow workers before first responders arrived. Calls to Falmouth Fire Department and administration were not immediately returned Friday. Fitzgerald said specifics of the investigation could not be discussed since the probe is ongoing, adding the process could take up to six months. He said they do not have an estimate of when the investigation will be finished. And as the cold and flu season drags on, multiple states across the U.S. are now also reporting cases of measles, a highly contagious virus that primarily affects children. The preventable illness was once common, but was eradicated in the U.S. thanks to the widespread use of vaccines, with most current cases originating originating outside of the country and occurring in unvaccinated people. The CDC issued an emergency warning on January 25th, telling the public to remain vigilant after 23 cases were confirmed in several states between December 1st and January 23rd. The case count remains low, but reports of new infections have continued to pop up in states all across the country, with some tied directly to international travelers. CDC data on current measles cases is updated monthly. In a January 25th update, jurisdictions in Georgia, Missouri, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania had reported a total of nine cases. However, several state health departments have also shared information about cases, though some states have only reported one confirmed case at a time. The last major outbreak of measles in the U.S. was in 2019, when a total of over 1,200 cases and 22 measles outbreaks were reported in the U.S. between January 1st and October 1st. According to the CDC, that was the second highest number of reported outbreaks since measles was declared eliminated in the U.S. in 2000. According to the CDC, measles symptoms appear 7 to 14 days after contact with the virus and typically include high fever, cough, runny nose, and watery eyes. Measles rashes appear three to five days after the first symptoms. Other signs and symptoms of measles include high fever, cough, runny nose and sneezing, red watery eyes, loss of appetite, diarrhea, a reddish-brown rash that can spread across the body, and tiny white spots that may appear inside the mouth two to three days after symptoms begin. And in some political news, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley pointed the finger at her competitor, former President Donald Trump, when talking about a string of GOP setbacks last week. Republicans had a really bad day, Haley told a crowd in Newberry, South Carolina on Saturday afternoon. The reality is chaos follows him, she added, referring to Trump. On that day, all of those losses, he had his fingerprints all over it. House Republicans suffered back-to-back blows Tuesday as their long-awaited vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas failed, with the help of a handful of their own members, along with the GOP's bill to fund aid to Israel. That same day, a federal appeals panel ruled that Trump is not immune from charges, alleging he tried to overturn the 2020 election. The judges rejected arguments by Trump's legal team that a president could not be prosecuted unless impeached and convicted by Congress. What is happening, Haley asked, before placing blame with the former president. We can't be a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos, Haley said. We will not survive it. 
Haley included in her list of Republican losses rumors of Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel's post-South Carolina primary exit in the wake of tension between Trump and McDaniel. South Carolinians will head to the polls for the GOP primary election on February 24th. Haley, South Carolina's former governor, had events planned throughout her home state over the weekend ahead of the start of early voting today, Monday. Haley also took aim at President Joe Biden on Saturday in her speech in Newberry. Biden had his own rough day Thursday after the special counsel reported describing the president as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. He can fight it all he wants, said Haley, who has called for mental competency tests for politicians throughout her presidential campaign. And from Ukraine, Russian forces launched 45 drones over Ukraine on Sunday in a a five-and-a-half-hour barrage, as Ukrainian President Zelensky continued the reshuffle of his wartime cabinet as the war enters its third year. The Ukrainian Air Force said it had shot down 40 of the Iranian-made Shahed drones over nine different regions, including on the outskirts of the country's capital, Kiev. The five-and-a-half-hour attack targeted agricultural facilities and coastal infrastructure. They said that a strike had injured one person, sparking a fire and damaging nearby residential buildings. The strike comes as Zelensky continues his shakeup of military commanders in a bid to maintain momentum against attacking Russian forces. Ukraine's military intelligence services said Sunday that attacking Russian forces had been found using Starlink terminals to aid their attack. It released what it said was a recording of an intercepted conversation between two Russian soldiers as proof. Starlink terminals, which use a series of satellites run by Elon Musk's company SpaceX to provide high-speed communications, have been vital in giving Ukraine's military an edge over invading Russian troops. However, multiple reports of Russian troops using Starlink on the front line in occupied Ukraine had begun to surface in recent weeks. They prompted SpaceX to release that prompted SpaceX to release a statement on social media Thursday saying it did not do business of any kind with the Russia government or its military. In this headline, Netanyahu says Biden very clear in Gaza talks. President Joe Biden, accused by special counsel last week of diminished capacities, displayed no such issues in more than a dozen extended phone conversations or during a visit to Israel during the war in the Gaza Strip, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday. I found him very clear, very focused, Netanyahu said on ABC's This Week. We managed to agree on the war aims and on many things. Sometimes we had disagreements, but they were not born of a lack of understanding on his part or my part, Netanyahu said. So that's what I can tell you. I haven't seen it. Netanyahu stood by Biden, Israel's most steadfast global supporter, in its month-long war in Gaza, which was launched after Hamas's brutal attacks on the border on October 7th, killing 1,200 people, mostly civilians. However, Netanyahu said Sunday that he and Biden have not spoken since Biden said Thursday that Israel's conduct of the Gaza campaign was over the top. Biden and his top aides are losing patience with Netanyahu and are no longer viewing him as a productive partner willing to make compromises, the Washington Post reports. 
Some of Biden's aides are urging him to be more publicly critical of Netanyahu's military operations in Gaza. And this sad story. Teen opioid overdoses are rising in U.S. Parents often scramble to find help after their child survives a drug overdose. They book the first treatment center they find online and scrape together whatever it costs to pay for it. People are desperate, said Patty Vargas, a California mother who took out a second mortgage to pay for a spot at a facility for her son Joel, who was addicted to meth as a teen and to heroin as an adult. They want to save their loved ones, so they just kind of grab any life raft that's out there. Joel relapsed after that stay, cycling in and out of jail. In 2017, he died before his 36th birthday. Vargas now works as a counselor for other grieving parents and has become an advocate for better resources for the next generation. As overdose deaths continue to increase among American teens, treatment for opioid use disorder remains limited. A new study shows that one intervention, inpatient treatment, is inaccessible to many. Few facilities exist nationwide, and they are often unaffordable for families whose children are struggling with opioid addiction. Families must navigate a complex web of addiction treatment services as they try to avoid another overdose for their children. Researchers called 160 addiction treatment facilities listed in the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's treatment locator in December 2022. Using a secret shopper approach, the researchers presented themselves as the aunt or uncle of a 16-year-old who had a recent non-fatal overdose of fentanyl and asked about treatment options and costs. They learned how difficult it was for parents in these scenarios to find these kinds of uh, interventions. The study comes as fentanyl has driven an increase in adolescent overdose, overdose deaths, reflecting a similar spike in other age groups. Researchers focused on people who had non-fatal overdoses since they're most likely to have fatal overdoses later on, said the study's senior author Ryan Cook. As it stands now, people in this sort of crisis shouldn't be doing this on their own, Cook said. They shouldn't be searching the internet and calling places like we did. And here's today's Ask Carolyn column with the headline, Longtime Boyfriend Keeps Questioning Weight Gain. Dear Carolyn, I've always been on the thin side, even getting screened for an eating disorder in high school, but I just had a high metabolism. My boyfriend of five years said I look great and emphasized it was better to be underweight than overweight. A while back, I got COVID and ended up losing my sense of smell and even more weight. My boyfriend was very supportive, always telling me I was beautiful, even when I felt like death. This year, my sense of smell came back and it's been wonderful. Food tastes good again, and I've been treating myself. My doctor was pleased with my health and told me I edged into the normal rate, weight range for my height. When I got home, my boyfriend was happy to hear I'm doing well, but then he asked about my weight and seemed surprised when I told him. He said, wow, I'd never guess you'd weigh that much. A few hours later, he brought it up again, asking if I planned to get any heavier. I said, no, I'm fine where I am. He agreed, but said about eight or ten pounds less would be better. I asked him why, since the doctor was happy and all my labs are great. He said he thought it was normal for me to be on the thinner side and gave a definite weight he thought I should be. I repeated, no, I'm running every day again, and I'm fine where I am. The next day, he brought it up again, asking if I was going to weigh myself once a week to keep track. 
When I straight up asked him why he was so focused on this, he said he didn't really care that much. I'm not convinced because he's still bringing it up. This morning when I kissed him goodbye, he asked if I'd weighed myself and tried to get me to check it with him right then. What do you think? Signed, On the Thin Side. Dear On the Thin Side, I think, bye bye I don't see what there is to interpret. He tells you daily exactly who he is and what he values. Better to be underweight? He's as subtle as a wet t-shirt. But the effect of his bias on you was masked by your never having gained until now. Suggested script is, Hey, I'm glad you asked about my weight, again, for the fourth time in a week, as I feel the best I've felt in years. Here's my plan. I plan to get heavier at times and lighter at times based on changing circumstances because I am a normal person with a normal body. I plan to keep meticulous track of my weight, except when I don't. Speaking of the future, do you plan to keep being a total, you get it, glass bowl? I suspect you will find your people are eager to help you bounce back from this breakup. And here's what's on TV tonight on CBS at 8 p.m. It's the season premiere of The Neighborhood. And in this season six premiere, Marty and Calvin are struggling with different management styles at work. And one of Marty's new employees, Courtney, might bring something more. On America's Got Talent at NBC at 8 p.m., the best of the best acts <clears throat> showcase their talents in hopes of being crowned the inaugural Fantasy League Championship. The audience votes to choose the winner, who will be crowned next week. On CBS at 8.30, it's the season premiere and the fifth and final season of Bob Hart's Abishola, in which Abishola finds out Dealey canceled his plans to go to Harvard behind her back. At 9 p.m. on CBS, it's the NCIS season premiere. The NCIS team must help Torres when he puts his future at stake by confronting the man who tormented his family decades ago. And at NCIS Hawaii is at 10 p.m. on CBS. And in the wake of the latest Boeing 737 MAX fiasco, a weeks-long groundings following the explosive decompression of an Alaska Airlines flight in January, a lot of passengers are inverting that old mantra, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Duck View 41 was already wary of flying on the 737 MAX 8 after its second crash in 2019, but the most recent incident confirmed his feelings about the aircraft family. Boeing has pledged to be transparent and strengthen safety, but for me, it's too little, too late, the Philadelphia management consultant said. View has tried to avoid the 737 MAX line when he flies, even switching his go-to carrier from Southwest to American due to the higher number in the former's fleet, though neither fly the MAX 9 variant involved in the January incident. In light of everything that happened with the Alaska flight, I felt very validated in my decision-making, he said. View is hardly alone. Social media is littered with posts from travelers who say they want to avoid Boeing 737 MAX jets in their future travels. Travel booking company Kayak even included filters on its flight search page that allow passengers to exclude itineraries with certain aircraft types. But for most travelers, it may be tough to decode what kind of plane is operating their flight because ultimately airlines, not passengers, are Boeing's customers. Travelers may not have much say over what kind of plane they're boarding once they've decided to fly somewhere. 
Most experts suggest there's no reason to worry, though. Many point to the excellent overall safety record of aviation in the U.S., and airlines that fly the MAX say they're sticking with Boeing, even as regulators increase oversight of the company's production lines. The Boeing 737 MAX's shadowed reputation isn't random. Soon after the aircraft type entered service, two major crashes left 346 people dead. The line of planes was grounded for nearly two years, as Boeing and regulators addressed a software issue that was ultimately implicated in both disasters. Once the planes were back in the air, there were no major safety concerns until January 5th, when a door plug uncovering an unused emergency exit ripped off during an Alaska Airlines flight. No one was injured, and the flight returned to Portland, Oregon safely, but the incident once again led regulators to ground some Boeing 737 MAX jets, this time only MAX 9 variants with the same door plug, 171 aircraft in all, until the cause of the issue was identified. The grounding lasted about three weeks, and many affected MAX jets are already back in service after undergoing required inspections. The NTSB issued a preliminary report on Tuesday suggesting that four bolts meant to hold the door plug in place on the Alaska Airlines jet were missing at the time of the January incident, though the agency said the investigation remains ongoing. But even after the 2019 grounding, which resulted from much more catastrophic issues, passengers kept flying MAX aircraft when they returned to service. Casey McCreary, a Portland-based body piercer, had anxiety about whether Boeing planes were safe in the wake of the incident, but she said those fears won't dictate whether she flies or which airline she chooses. It does feel like it would be impractical to avoid them, but also them having so many planes out there that haven't had these issues does help a bit. Some people in the news. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has a memoir coming out in June a look back at his long career as an infectious disease expert and the many outbreaks he contended with, from HIV and AIDS to the COVID-19 pandemic that made him famous. Viking announced Thursday that Fauci's On Call, A Doctor's Journey in Public Service, will be published on June 18th. I hope that this memoir will serve as a personalized document for the reader to understand better the daunting challenges that we have faced in public health over the past 40 years, Fauci said in a statement released Thursday by Viking, I would also like to inspire younger individuals in particular to consider careers in public health and public service. Fauci, 83, was director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health for nearly 40 years and was President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor until his retirement in 2022. Fauci served under seven presidents, starting with Ronald Reagan, but he is best known for his time during Donald Trump's administration when he and White House often clashed over how to respond to the coronavirus. Millions regarded Fauci with his raspy voice and plain-spoken style as the government's trusted point man during the heights of the pandemic. But he would become increasingly estranged from Trump, who favored a faster return to normal life and advocated unproven treatments. Republicans and anti-vaxxers have since criticized him relentlessly on a wide range of issues and have written books attacking him, including Senator Rand Paul's Deception, The Great COVID Cover-Up, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s 
the real Anthony Fauci. And nearly 20 years after their last collaboration, Spike Lee and Denzel Washington are reuniting for an adaptation of Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Apple Original Films announced Thursday that it is co-financing the film, which A24 will release theatrically before it streams on Apple TV+. It marks Lee and Washington's first film together since 2006 Inside Man. Their previous films include Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, and He Got Game. Kurosawa's High and Low, released in 1963, was adapted from the Ed McBain novel King's Ransom. The film, a potent thriller rich in class commentary, follows a wealthy industrialist targeted by kidnappers. Filming starts in March. And Colombian singer-songwriter Carol G. has earned the title of Billboard's 2024 Woman of the Year, landing her in the same company as Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga. Last week, Carol G. made history when she not only won her first ever Grammy, but became the first woman to win in Best Musica Urbana, a moment that may reflect changing perceptions of reggae and Latin hip-hop as exclusively men's music. You know, I feel a lot of responsibility about that. As a woman, I have to say, like in my experience, it was tough, like so many things, to be a girl in this industry and the music that I do in urban music, she told the Associated Press. Now she will be honored as Woman of the Year at the Billboard Woman in Music Awards on March 6th. Previous honorees include Madonna, Cardi B, Billie Eilish, Selena Gomez, and Ariana Grande. In 2023, her album, Manana Ser Bonito, one of AP's picks for Best of the Year, broke streaming records and hit number one on the Billboard 200, making her the first woman to do so with a Spanish-language release. And on this day in history, in 1809, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the U.S., was born in Kentucky. In 1909, the NAACP was founded. In 1914, groundbreaking took place for the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And in 1973, Operation Homecoming began as the first release of American prisoners of war from the Vietnam conflict took place. And in 2000, Charles Schultz, creator of the Peanuts comic strip, Peanuts comic strip died in California at the age of 77. And that's all the time I have for today. This is your reader, Beth, saying thank you for listening and thanks for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.